We all know that we're heading towards a bio-revolution for humanity. Gene editing, designer babies, 100-year-plus lifespans for all, and who knows what else is coming our way. There's a lot of promise there, but there's also a lot of risk if we happen to get it wrong. How do we know where to go? Or better yet, how can we even get a handle on the long-term future for humanity? This week's guest, Jane Metcalf, has a front-row seat to this bioscience revolution as the founder and editor of Neo Life. She's going to share her experiences working at the leading edge of the future, first with the digital revolution as founder of Wired Magazine, and now on the leading edge of the bio-revolution. Burning desire. Big ideas. Bold action. Hi, it's Michael Sean Conaway, and I want to welcome you to today's generative conversation. Uh, these conversations are aimed at opening up the space of thinking and dialogue about the future of humanity. Um, the things that we speak about and deal with in these conversations are less in the world of certainty or predicting what a future is going to have, but much more in the world of, of conversation, inquiry, and hopefully uh, giving us the ability to generate a future that would be desirable for humanity, one that could allow for thriving. Uh, today, I want to welcome you, welcome uh, Jane Metcalf to uh, the conversation. Jane is a dear friend. Uh, she's the founder of Wired Magazine uh, and helped to, if you would, invent the future of, uh, of the computer age uh, with that magazine, at least reflect on it and be a co-participant in that. And then most recently, she has founded another publication called Neo Life, which is tracking all of the the, the new inventions and new um, uh, emerging technologies and emerging thoughts about our physical form about our biological life and how that is really entering into an age of explosive growth, uh, which has fundamental um, fundamental impacts on what it means to be a human being. Uh, Jane, welcome to this conversation. Hi, Michael Schlantz. Great to see you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 in a way, when I think of like my journey as a futurist, it's so entangled with the era of Wired magazine. Um, I can remember... Um, uh, you know, the, some of the, the early issues that, that we got in the nineties and, and this feeling that the conversation we were having was a new conversation and that the, the relationship and understanding a relationship of our technological world and what we were creating and inventing as, as artists and writers and designers, uh, was, um, was really being featured by you guys. And so for me, like, I can't untangle the beginning of my career from Wired Magazine. I feel like it's an ex was an expression at the time of who I was. You know, did did you feel in that time that that you were, did you feel that you had your hand on the pulse of some kind of future? Or is that just my recollection of it? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we were in Amsterdam publishing a magazine on behalf of a company that did um, translation services and also software for translators. And it was this little, you know, publication um, in a very, very niche uh, space. But because it was ultimately dealing with how machines and humans communicate with each other, um, you know, and we were looking into things like um, machine translation and um, neural networks and sort of, you know, um, how to preserve ambiguity as you move in and out of one language. We were looking at Esperanto as like an interlingua. I mean, it's all this like crazy out there stuff. Um, but again, it just felt, you know, cognitive linguistics is a very specific thing. And 
um, Lewis, my partner, went to Macworld in San Francisco and, you know, came back with um, the first uh, copy of PageMaker. And, you know, the whole desktop publishing revolution was um, just kicking off at that point. And, um, you know, he was in Silicon Valley talking to the engineers who were developing these types of tools. And, you know, it's just everybody's imaginations were just going wild. And what happens when people have the power to, you know, publish their own, um, you know, their own ideas? And, you know, desktop publishing seems so trivial today. And yet at the time it was, you know, it was the beginning of social media in a sense. It was like the biggest thing, you know, to come down the pike since the invention of the personal computer. And it was really what drove the personal computer. I mean, that of course, and, and sex um, apps and so forth. Um, I remember we ran a, a story uh, in Wired and the headline was, you know, sex is the killer app that drives all technology. And that was a fresh idea back at the time, but, uh, uh, Anyway, no, we were absolutely um, taken by the vision of all these engineers and computer scientists that we were meeting and touched by the humanity that they brought to their work and the sense of, of mission that they had. And, you know, this idea that they were developing tools for creative people um, that would unleash, you know, untold human uh, imagination, creativity and ingenuity. And, you know, it was a, it was a sizzling time uh, to be alive and to be there. And, um, you know, there were just extraordinary people, you know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and, um, you know, Alan Kay, who's been thinking about how technology and education um, can be used to unlock human potential. Um, you know, there were just theorists of all stripes around. And so, yeah, we were very conscious of it. We were um, I mean, it was one of those moments where it's funny too, because I'm I'm like the very tail end of the baby boom generation, um, sometimes also known as Gen X. But um, everywhere I went up until that point in my life, everybody would say, "Oh yeah, it's cool now, but you should have been here ten years ago," you know. And it, we had this very distinct feeling of being right here, right now, at the dawn of a new civilization. Yeah, I remember the we'd go to conferences and. We'd be talking about because we were our whole thing was you know gaming and interactive media, interactive storytelling, and just I mean there are still projects that we invented that still haven't been realized today that are yeah. that are still ahead of their time, and that was in the, the late '90s. You know I think and I think when I think of you guys, I don't just think of technology. I think of great writing, uh, and I also think of, of not only great design but but boundary pushing design. I mean in a way, there uh, uh, Wired magazine was at a certain point a a style guide, if you will, and not only like a, 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 a an assault, you know, like it was like that there was not going to be, um, uh, we're not going to leave you without being changed or altered by the physical presence of the magazine. And so, I mean, how did you go from computer scientist to um, artist and visionary artist in in a magazine? It seems like an improbable combination to me. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, um, you know, Lewis didn't start out as a computer scientist at all. In fact, is not a computer scientist, although I can't tell you how much time he's, he spends, you know, tinkering with technology. Um, but he's not a programmer at all. Never was, never will be. Um, and, you know, his father was an engineer 
and they grew up, um, you know, his father was constantly building the house. The house actually never got finished. Man died 60 years later, never quite finished the house. Um, so that tells you something. But um, and so but it was the idea of, um, you know, reverse engineering things and do it yourself and, you know, figure it out as you go. You know, that whole kind of mentality uh, Lewis certainly brought to the project. But, um, yeah, he was a writer. Uh, you know, he was a, a creative writer. He published a magazine when he was a student at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, I should, uh, I could show you. It's just right down the hall here. But um, yeah, he was a, a political thinker mm-hmm. and uh, published a magazine um, on on like radical ways of thinking about things um, that uh, ultimately landed him on the cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, as the originator of um, of uh, of new political thought. But um, so he was, and of course, his father invented typesetting. His father was one of the engineers. Uh, his father did amazing work, um, kind of at the forefront of all the key technologies of the 20th century. Uh, and so, you know, Lewis already understood type and page layout. Um, he himself is is very creative, you know, has tremendous design talents and instincts and architect. He's a better architect um, I, I, I've seen him argue with the architects that we've worked with in the past over the roof lines. He's like, no, you're going to create a problem. And the architect will stare at it and go, oh, you're right. Um, so, but then of course we partnered with John Plunkett and Barbara Coor, who are extraordinary designers and creative thinkers. And, um, you know, I think the, um, the collaboration and the intersection of, um, of ideas was uh, just combustion. And, you know, I, John would talk about, you know, we're telling stories with pictures and words. And, you know, he never considered himself the person who would only um, arrive on the scene after the words were already written, you know? And so it's like, we are telling the story with a dual stream. And those who prefer words will get the story through the words. And those who communicate and understand things visually will get it through um, visual inputs. And, um, and I think that kind of mentality was fresh among publishers at the time, you know, there was like the, the designers were the people who did the pretty things at the end of the process. Uh, whereas they were intricately woven into everything we were doing. And as you say, it was a time of extraordinary invention. And so as we were pioneering, you know, these new media, um, you know, we wanted designers embedded with the teams right from the start to think about, you know, things like not just what does it look like, but what is the user experience? So our design thinking goes, you know, way, way back. Yeah. It's, um, um, yeah, again, seminal is a word that comes to mind. Like it was a moment, especially the, by the time we get to the late nineties, um, you know, especially right prior to the kind of IPO frenzy that, that took over, um, some of the more creative pursuits that, that were being, uh, uh, um, you know, featured in the magazine. And I want, and I would just, there's something I want to just like touch on here or kind of explore a little bit. I think, you know, in that period of time, we were imagining a, you know, maybe a, a little techno utopia mentality about how things were going, but we were really imagining maybe. that. <laughs> okay. Guilty as charged. We were really imagining, um, you know, that, that, these technologies were going to liberate people in some really significant ways. And, you know, sitting here uh, some uh, 20 plus years later, it's, it's clear that 
that while technology has brought a lot of, of gifts, and I specifically mean uh, interactive technology, computer technology, um, data, et cetera, et cetera, it's also brought us um, a, a, a real large number of, of social ills, uh, all the way from uh, you know the, the, the you know, inaccurate or not truthful news to flat out manipulation and lying and um, you know siloization uh, uh, of people and their their um, thinking habits and the way they perceive the world. Um, certainly not the world we were imagining in that period of time. You know, just walk me through your thinking a little bit of 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 where you went from at that point where we were in, involved in like imagining what might be a better future for humanity to today. And what are some of the things that you think are, were important that didn't have it turn out to necessarily be better for humanity? And I'll leave it to historians to maybe to determine exactly what, what was, but, you know, from a kind of very in the, in the front row of the experience, um, you know, what did you see about that? And when did you see it really start to change? And then where are we now? Mm, that's such a big question. I hope we could spend the entirety of our time together on this one thing, <laughs> because obviously um, I have been thinking about it, you know, for 25 or 30 years, as the case may be. Uh, and it is alarming. I mean, we, on balance, um, tend to look for disaster as humans. It is an evolutionary trait that has served us well. If we are scouring the horizon, analyzing potential threats, then we are far better prepared uh, to dodge them or, or, or defeat them, as the case may be. Um, you know, as a journalist, I know that, um, you know, it's, it's journalism's job to, you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Uh, and so when a new technology comes out and, you know, all the investors and the entrepreneurs you know, or all rah-rah about what it's going to do, you know, a typical journalistic response to that is skepticism. Yeah, prove it, right? Um, I don't believe that. And here's how it could all go wrong. And have you thought of that? And so forth. We've just published a story yes, last week, in fact, where because we were asking very pointed questions, you know, we got the largest private equity company in the country to actually promise to never use Ancestry.com's uh, DNA data um, to integrate with the other data from the other companies in their portfolio. Oh wow! Is, now, I just read that article, so that's that's some pretty I that's pretty impressive actually. Journalism making a big impact that way, right? So I'm I'm kind of proud of that. Um, they said we're not initially including it uh, as we look at it, and then after we published the piece, they said we would like to clarify. We will never. <laughs> it's like that was big. That was big. So. When we are sitting here surrounded by these dreamers with these incredibly powerful tools and the ability to design more tools that can transform human interactions and communication, we're annoyed as hell by the journalists in New York who have no idea what we're talking about and all they want to do is be skeptical. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, one of the things that they would bring up was the haves and have nots. And to me, it is the key issue. I think the information flows follow on after this key idea of exacerbating the divide between the haves and have-nots. And I've spent a significant part of my career actually involved with um, organizations that have been working on exactly that issue. And um, so, but when they said that, you know, back in the 90s, we're busy saying, no, but you don't understand, you know, we can get world experts 
can now be available to you, you know, on a, on a computer at the library. You know, you don't have to have an Ivy League education to, to engage with this person and to understand what they're saying. And, you know, this was before Khan Academy and all the online courses had been developed, but we could see that was where it was going. Um, you know, the way it was going to tear down boundaries and distribute information. You know, as each subsequent era of, um, of development has progressed, you know, the idea that you don't have access to this basic information becomes, okay, now you don't have access to this more um, rarefied information, or, you know, now we're complaining about the fact that you have to pay for a scientific paper, right, scientific publishing. But we're losing sight of the fact that nevertheless, anybody can go on Khan Academy, you know, and learn anything they want um, and use that. They can learn business skills, they can learn technical skills, you know, all the rest of it, and in many cases for free. So that is true, and we can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, 150,000 people a day climb out of, you know, extreme poverty. Um, so, and, and the world is getting better. There is no question about it, which means that we can elevate our concerns, you know, to, to more rarefied things. Having said that, what we did not anticipate was the rise of these monopolies and and techopolies and um, the extent to which they would shape and control our thinking. Um, and you know, the corrupting influence of money will work its way into any human endeavor. You know, just like sex is the thing that drives, you know, early adoption, you know, money is the thing that corrupts human um, endeavors. It motivates people to do extraordinary things. Um, and it motivates people to be extremely greedy and, um, and dishonest. And so, you know, this is the question of the, the box cutter, you know, that is the box cutter, uh, uh, a useful thing that allows us to do X, Y, and Z, you know, or is it a tool to hijack a plane or kill people or whatever, you know, it's not the tool itself. It's how human beings own nature uses that tool for good and for evil. So, um, you know, I'm still hopeful that, you know, the balance of good and evil in the world hasn't been tipped in a particular direction <laughs> and that, you know, for every impulse, uh, some corporate entity or uh, nefarious individual or, or just somebody who's sick or ill, um, you know, has, there's a corresponding, you know, positive power that can counteract that. And so I think, you know, that reality still pertains. And meanwhile, people are getting smarter, they are getting more sophisticated, and we are beginning to understand how our tools shape us, um, you know, on every level, you know, you know, how they shape not just our workflow. I remember my son was um, taking art classes uh, from this fantastic teacher in Amsterdam, and um, we would come and go um, every year. And so each year we would come back a year later and she would work with him again. And, you know, she loved um, his creativity. And when he was about eight, uh, he started playing video games and she noticed it in his art. She said his art got smaller and it was because the, sh the screen had become his new reality. And so his art was a reflection of that. Um, 
you know, we can look at the brain, we can look at brain scans, and we can see how the technology that we use, um, you know, is changing our brains. Um, and, and on and on, it's changing uh, the way we design, it's changing our social structures, it's changing our entire civic, you know, um, process. So, um, was I, I'm sorry, what was the question? No, 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 it's because we're looking at like how things, like, I think from the, the, uh, the, the kind of futurist utopian view that we had in the late nineties, how did things get off the rails? But maybe in a, a, a clear sense, what you're saying is that it, it never was on rails to some kind of idealized world for humanity. It, it went the way thing, human things go that, you know, sex gets involved and money gets involved and, and, uh, and monopoly gets involved. I mean, honestly, that the, the, the techopolies, as you call them, uh, they were masterful at avoiding regulation in ways that other industries have never escaped. And still to this, I mean, even think about the, the rise of Uber where they just ignored regulation and they were able to run roughshod over things. It's, 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 it's kind of really interesting. And I think part of it was the love affair with technology that, that at least the Americans were having at that time that kind of created a gap for some of what turned out to be not completely beneficial behavior for human beings. Uh, beneficial for those companies, but but not necessarily beneficial for human beings. I, I think that the technology um, itself is ingenious, and the regulators don't understand it. Yeah. So um, you know, I think that we have seen this in the past, whether it was railroads or you know um, or other energy sources or or what have you. Um, you know, the 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 lag time between the innovation itself and when the regulators catch up with it. Um, and, you know, the bottom line is everybody was busy making a lot of money and nobody wanted to slow that down. And, you know, even at Wired, we were very much champions of, um, you know, let technology do what it's going to do because it's going to rise all, you know, lift all boats. And, you know, we famously um, published uh, uh, John Barlow's essay on, um, you know, wine without bottles about intellectual property and, you know, the declaration of independence of cyberspace, mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, we come before you, you know, citizens of a new planet called cyberspace. And, you know, you terrestrial beings are not equipped to, you know, impose your laws on us because this is a whole new realm. And, you know, while that is true and it required fresh thinking about things and still requires fresh thinking and will always require fresh thinking because, this technology innovation cycle will continue on, you know, hopefully forever, because if it stops, it's because there are no more humans. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, um, you know, we do have to, you know, the regulars come up behind and, uh, and, and try and carve out protections. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I want to make sure that for our, our, our listeners right now, I'm not saying that regulation in the typical political sense is is what I would say is missing. I think it's almost like you know you're saying in Wired you had your designers working with your writers. What what I think there's a function that that we were missing in a way, which was uh, those who think holistically and systems wise. Um, and and I'm not saying there wasn't people back there doing that, but it just seemed like we were running so fast and inventing so fast and creating so fast that maybe those people that had that more systems view or more the ability to do you know. Not the thesis of what's going to be great, but the antithesis is of what could go wrong or how things could become weaponized or how if you mix this radical technology with with kind of unfettered capitalism, you might get this. And and the reason I bring it up is that, you know, especially with your work now uh, with Neolife, you know, the 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 fundamental uh, um, uh, risk 
at, you know, really changing our, our, our bodies and our DNA and our way our brains function is, um, you know, if we get that one wrong in some fundamental ways, then we have, you know, existential crisis. In fact, we have weaponization of many of these technologies that could lead us to existential crisis for humanity. So as we're ramping into this next section, you know, I think, and I think possibly also, Jane, I would just say, could come with age and wisdom versus, you know, you go back to us, you know, some 25 years ago, there was just youthful exuberance, which was great. Um, you know, how do we look forward in two kinds of, of guises? How do we look forward with the ability to have that exuberance and excitement about the invention of newness, but also the, the sobriety to be responsible for that which we're inventing and that, that we can analyze the environment which we're turning these things loose in. I mean, we turned, uh, um, you know, technology loose into a, a, a kind of newly emerging uh, uh, investment and, and uh, capitalist world that allowed for this explosive growth of these companies. It was unheralded at that point, uh, unheard of and unheralded. And so here we are, we're in another, we're in, and I don't think that's ever stopped. I think actually it's just accelerating. Um, where is this space? I guess the, the thing I'm looking for is where is the space for what is, what is a, what is a benevolent future for humankind? And how do we begin to have both the enthusiasm about the future and some kind of um, shaping sense or a yeah. regulation sense or a function called regulating it so that human beings might survive the next era and thrive? That's yeah. a, that's, that's what I'm, that's the scratch, the itch that I'm, I'm wanting to scratch and doing it with you. I can, we can do it a little bit looking back and then looking forward. Yeah. Um, you know, you're right yeah. in the middle of that. What is that? How is that? What is that like in those conversations with people who are messing with some fundamental blocks of being a human being? Well, I think it's fascinating for me. I mean, I feel like I'm doing, you know, the work I was meant to do, um, you know, and that I'm almost in a unique position. There aren't that many people uh, who have the benefit of seeing the digital revolution, but also looking at what's happening in the life sciences mm -hmm. and how, you know, I, I essentially think of what's happening now is the next stage of the digital revolution, right? Because the digital revolution was really about transforming our, the way we do work and the way we educate our kids and the way we participate in civic society, you know, our communication, our entertainment, right? It was all our like structures basically. And that kind of played out. I mean, my son is 20, he's going to be 25. He just actually just turned 25, 24, sorry. <laughs> and, um, you know, he essentially grew up with screens, you know, his whole life. And um, it's had, you know, a, a, a sort of predictable um, trajectory that I see played out in, in my kids. Um, so that's kind of, in a sense, done. You know, that first 25-year cycle is now kind of complete. And, you know, the next phase is this technological revolution going inside our bodies, Right. And so it's changing. It starts with things like, you know, ocular implants, you know, or um, uh, uh, I mean, I, I went to a basically a, a body hacking conference and we're on our way to dinner and everybody's like, I'm a cyborg. You know, how many implants do you have? And I was like, well, actually, I have an IUD and I've got a pin in my knee and I've got, you know, whatever. And they're like, yeah, you're a cyborg. And I was like, I never thought of it that way. You know, I have this prosthetic device, you know, that I use to make phone calls, but it's also a cognitive enhancement tool. Um, so, so I think it's interesting to look at the trajectory. I think it's also interesting to look at the technologies that we're talking about, you know, 
back in, uh, in 1989, you know, we were talking about the desktop publishing revolution, you know, and the big risk there was that you would create ugly documents. <laughs> This is fundamentally different, you know. What we're looking at now are technologies that transform entire species. You know, if we're talking about a gene drive, you know, that could completely disrupt entire ecosystems, right? If you want to like prevent a mosquito from carrying um, malaria uh, and you do something that can be transmitted, not just during that population's life cycle, but to all subsequent offspring of that particular bug, um, you know, now you're impacting the birds and the bees and, you know, everything else. So, um, you know, we, we can look back at um, the kind of regulation that we were able to stave off in the early days of the digital revolution. Um, but life sciences always had this, you know, they've always had this um, concern about moving forward and checking and moving forward and checking, you know? And if you look at how the nuclear program um, happened, you know, it's, um, you know, Edward Teller, you know, the Manhattan Project, you know, that happened and the immediate, they immediately realized um, what they had on their hands. And a whole subset of, of scientists then devoted the rest of their careers and that work continues in trying to protect humanity from the negative impacts of nuclear um, energy and, and, and nuclear power. Um, and then of course, now there's a whole group of people who are very pro nuclear power uh, for, for just kind of the same reasons, but with opposite, uh, opposite arguments. Um, so if you look back, I mean, 1970 something, 1972, 73, you know, Asilomar was the um, seat of uh, one of the first gatherings of scientists who were concerned about the use of recombinant DNA. Um, you know, fast forward to whatever it must have been, let's say 2013 was the first time CRISPR-Cas9, uh, I believe, was used for human gene editing. Now, of course, this is just human cells. This isn't in actual humans. This is all lab work. Um, and, uh, you know, there was an immediate um, understanding of what could happen and a group of concerned scientists who gathered together to say, how are we going to prevent this technology from, from, you know, disrupting our entire species. And um, so there was a, you know, collaborative, very open um, and honest exchange of, of opinions and the world scientific community agreed we should not move forward with human gene editing using CRISPR-Cas9 that, you know, we can continue the research, but that, you know, we have to put a moratorium on the use of this in human cells. But there's always incentives, you know, and, you know, this wasn't, this didn't reach, reach the level of, you know, official regulation, but it was an agreed upon moratorium by all the world scientists working in that space. And then we have John Q, you know, who for reasons of, of personal glory and, um, and perhaps economic opportunity, or perhaps, who knows, political manipulation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, maybe he was sent out by the Chinese government to, you know, or set up by the Chinese government to do exactly what he did right. so that the Chinese could actually witness what the world's response would be. Uh, and then they could throw him under the bus if it made them look bad. Uh, so there's, you know, there's that kind of theory. Um, so it's, it's, 
to me, I, I consider it, you know, just another one of those checks and balances. Yeah, well, and I think the thing that's um, that's what gets uncovered, you know, especially we talk about gene editing of of uh, our, our potential offspring, uh, and you know, I think it's a a great topic because it un unveils a lot of the other uh, ethical dilemmas for humanity in general. You start not, you know, you're talking about being a cyborg or a transhuman or a posthuman, you know, all these kinds of ideas. Um, you know, the 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 piece that you know, maybe we've been struggling with since, you know, the Plato's Academy is what is a good human life and what is a good human society look like? And certainly you, you can look at these technologies as really great um, test cases for, well, what are the ethics of this? Obviously, hey, look, if I could edit genes and, and, and have people not suffer from some really radically debilitating um, genetic disorders, wouldn't that be great? Well, most people say, yes, that would be great. And then you say, well, if I could change my child's skin color, or eye color, would that be great? Most are like, no, that's probably not great, which is a very simplistic view of this, but it, it illuminates for me that we can't just do technology on basic simple ethics cases that we actually require much more. You were talking about the, the, you know, the, 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 the mosquitoes. You know, if, if you don't understand the ecosystems these developments are going into, you could destroy an ecosystem and destroying an ecosystem could have a chain reaction called no more life on the planet. But, and to even to have a, even to have a, uh, a capacity to imagine that gives us the capacity, because we're human beings, we can imagine really a lot of things, it gives us a capacity to imagine how these impacts might carry out, not just upon our children, but you know, generations down the line. And in fact, I, I, I wanna ask you this question because it's occurred to me, are we in this moment, is, is there, is, does it seem like to you that there are a lot more people asking really long-term questions about humanity than there was you know, 25 years ago when we were in this other very futuristic conversation? Because to me, it seems like we're all talking about multi-generational impacts, 100-year impacts, crazy ideas like 10,000 years from now. Um, yeah, what, what, how is that over there where you are? Well, I mean, you know, being right in the middle of Silicon Valley, it's, you know, loud. <laughs> it's a loud conversation. And, you know, the thing that's exciting to me, I mean, it is the technology itself is fundamentally different from any kinds of technologies that we have developed before. And, you know, the internet networking in general has given us, you know, this, this kind of sense of what we can collectively do. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, geothermal energy, you know, we're talking about colonizing space, you know, we're talking about um, engineering the human genome, you know, so it's like, we would never have been able to do this without the digital technologies that have been developed in the last 50, 60 years. So, What's interesting to me is that the voices um, saying, yeah, but hang on, is that good for humans are now being listened to. And, you know, in the past, it's because they didn't have the technological capability to understand what was going on. And we didn't necessarily have a, a broad enough understanding in society of where things could go wrong. And so I feel like this, you know, the last 25 years has done a really good job of preparing us for our future. You know, we see what happens thanks to the pandemic when the entire world, you know, comes together to focus on one problem, you know, and I think, I don't know if you were speaking like in the last year or the last five years or whatever, but I just, there's a number of signposts along the way, um, you know, like Tristan Harris leaving Google and, you know, Facebook and sort of recognizing that moment, that class, you know, that taught those engineers 
what stickiness was on a website, how to people, how to get people to come and come back and spend more time. You know, it was like from that moment forward, I think there's, um, and, and having, you know, venture capitalists and investors, uh, say, yes, you're right. This is a problem. We, we need to pay attention to that. I mean, this actually, now that I think about it, um, you know, it goes back to an essay that uh, Bill Joy wrote for Wired in, I believe it was the year 2000, where he basically worried about, you know, essentially the singularity. Like if we continue developing, you know, artificial intelligence at the rate that we are currently doing so, it becomes apparent that we will arrive at a point at which, um, you know, we can no longer track or, or even understand the artificial intelligences that we develop and, you know, what do we do then? And, and how do we, you know, like that scene in the Terminator, you know, how do we have John Connor, you know, come back from the future and prevent that one scientist from doing that one thing, you know, that will prevent the robots from taking over. Um, you know, we've been thinking about this for a long time. And, um, and what's exciting to me is that the conversation is changing and um, you know, not that there's much good to say about coronavirus, but you know, when all is said and done, if that's all it took to wake us up to our potential as like one species, one planet, you know, to work together, to to focus on one thing and, and design solutions, um, then maybe all of this horrible sacrifice will have been worth it. Yeah. Um uh, hopefully, I mean, it's a certainly uh, pattern interrupt, right? The the capacity to, um, you know, especially I think uh, our modern life, especially as 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 tied to technology, has been a, a very fast paced life. Uh, you know, not any structured time to sit around and think about things because we can work twenty four hours a day and be productive, really super highly effective at midnight. Versus, well, our- and if we're not, we could take modafinil. You know. <laughs> Which is what the drug they give fighter pilots to like stay right. away. Just keep going, right? I mean, I mean, our parents' generation working at midnight would have literally, unless you had a, a graveyard shift at a, a diner, you there was no working at midnight. Right. Not, it was there wasn't even an opportunity. Versus now we can work twenty four hours a day. You know, I think the the pattern interrupt of not of actually like just being forced to slow down has caused a lot of that. Um, because then when patterns get interrupted, we have to find, you know, a new stasis, a new place to ground ourselves. And um, that rate that requires some some thinking. I want to go back to something you said. You you brought up Terminator. And I, this is a, a hypothesis I have that that you know that basically for most human beings on the planet right now, we have two futures. Either uh, the 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 AI robots are gonna get us or the zombies are gonna get us. So it's either gonna be a computer catastrophe or it's gonna be a biosciences catastrophe that takes us out. And and in general, and mostly because dark stories tend to sell much better than than, than the opposite kind, you know, we 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 live in a a world of of, of potential dystopia, at least in our imagination, uh, kind of as a constant threat. And I think even at the beginning of the conversation, you said we're always hyper vigilant about these threats, and and that orients our our looking and our our kind of desire to to to, to criticize is where we started. But you know, like like you've been in this a long time. You know, as, as you look forward to grandchildren's age, uh, great-grandchildren's age, I don't even think, I don't think either one of us can begin to anticipate the technological world that might take place 100 years from now. Um, but, but that being said, um, we can begin to imagine what we think would be a good world for them to inhabit. 
And, and I, you know, I think given the access you have to some of the scientists and people that you're working with, you know, do you see that as part of what's emerging right now is this, this desire to think about, imagine, and then, and then work on from our limited tools to impact the future that far down the line, um, you know, as a project for humanity that, that we actually are interested in generating something that's different than the zombies or the, the AI from, from uh, ending the world for human beings. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, we, we think a lot about this, you know, we have this motto at Wired that change is good, you know, and um, I think people are terrified by change, um, you know, and, and for good reason, it's the unknown. So how, what could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot could possibly go wrong. Um, I think about what can go right. And, you know, I feel like it's our job at Neolife to find those things that look like positive outcomes um, or look like they could lead us to positive outcomes and kind of highlight those in, in a sort of curated way. You know, what, what would we like to see happen? Um, I, was, I was thinking about these two companies. I, I often use them as examples. Um, uh, one is called Mango Materials and um, they basically use methane gas um, and, you know, through a process of fermentation uh, can transform that into biopolymers uh, which can then be used to create bioplastics, which, you know, could replace the plastics that are currently clogging our, our ecosystem. Uh, and then, of course, they break down and decompose and become carbon that then fuel, become methane gas that then fuels the, the rest of it. Um, there's a company called Novo Nutrients, and they use um, industrial gas like CO2 uh, as, a, um, as basically a, a foodstuff to uh, create industrial food products. So fish meal and things like that. Um, and of course, again, when that breaks down and creates more carbon, so that creates more, you know, these like closed looped um, cradle cradle kind of solutions are at our fingertips, right. you know? And it's like, they're right there and people are working on that. And that will transform a lot of things, right? A lot of people are gonna be out of jobs because plastics have, you know, created um, so much plastics, packaging, you know, all of that thing. Um, hugely disruptive, and yet clearly the direction we need to be heading in, right? You know, you could talk about engineering nature. Um, I, I was at this really interesting conversation at the TED conference uh, when there was a cloud scientist, you know, up on stage, and, you know, they're trying to understand the role of clouds on, um, on, on terrestrial greenhouse gases. And, um, you know, the idea was, you know, should we be doing geoengineering uh, in a way that could impact the clouds? And, you know, Al Gore was sitting in the audience and he goes, you know, I, for one, don't want to use, you know, planet Earth as a, a, a giant experiment, you know, to figure out about that. And it's like, wait, but that is exactly what we're doing. <laughs> you know, all day, every day, humanity are doing things on our planet you know, with our energy sources, with our own bodies, with our agriculture, you know, which are experiments. And so what would we like to see happen? And, um, you know, there's there's tremendous risk in moving science forward, it's particularly when it comes to things like gene editing, tremendous risk. But if we don't try, we'll never know. And so how do you move the science forward um, in a way that you quickly understand what's working and what's not so that you can minimize the risk? And there will be sacrifices, you know, humans will die, families will suffer. Um, but 
in the long run, how many families will suffer to unlock how much health or how much um, uh, how much clean environment, you know, or or how much clean energy? Uh, so, you know, what I get excited about is um, just diversifying, just creating more opportunities, you know, and um, and then we have choices, and you know, there, then it becomes a market issue, you know, uh, like. And and whether something succeeds in the market or not is a sustainability issue, just as much as environmental sustainability is an issue. And you know, and when you get the two together, then you have a way forward. And the only way to get the two together is just to have a plethora of options. Um, but a lot of people making a lot of different bets on a lot of different types of technology and science. Yeah, and I, I just the you know, of course, with the biosciences, we already have bioethics. We have a we have a. You know, a tradition. You, you're you're talking about um, uh, recombinant DNA reaching back into the 1970s and begin this conversation. It seems that you know, like at Wired, going you know, like it seems like we need this. You know, we need a whole a whole generation of ethicists to come along with this. The ability to really see clearly into these human choices. I I I don't I don't remember many ethical conversations going on in the late 90s. We thought everything was good. Um, you know, that, that, that was the basic stance, you know, everything is, is, uh, uh, going to turn into this amazing dem democratized world where a child in India can have as much, you know, information and expertise. And that's true. And it's, it is true today. And honestly, a lot of the, our work at Boldly Now is how do we create, you know, tools that allow people to upgrade themselves, become purposeful, get out there and make an impact. And right. we, we think a lot about the child in India. Again, it's still, it's still important that we do that. And. Um, you know, when we're dealing with entrepreneurs that are building new businesses or even nonprofits, we do now ask them uh, the question of to take a moment and think about how your your project could be used uh, to to nefarious ends or not even nefarious, but just accidental accidental blowback that you unleash something that that maybe you should have thought about before you unleashed. And and so there's a maturity, I think, that's happening in this. And. Um, yeah. You know, I think I think you know we've we've now um, spent a lot of our focus on getting young people into STEM programs. Maybe we need to get some young people into philosophy programs and ethics programs as well, and and have this this kind of coevolutionary force. So that's exactly what I'm thinking: is that we cannot separate those. Yeah. Those are not two different tracks. No. So I had a really interesting conversation with a woman named Greg Renfrew, and she runs a company called Beauty Counter. Mm -hmm. And um, Beauty Counter's goal is to produce cosmetics that are not full of chemicals of dubious origin and impact, both on human um, uh, health as well as the environment. And she told me something, and I wish I could remember the, uh, the exact details of it, but she basically said that the FDA had not outlawed a new chemical uh, in 50 years, and that there had been like 18,000 new chemicals designed you know, over that period of time. And that's really interesting. Um, so I think we need to, it, it, you know, my suggestion to her was, um, you know, she wanted to focus on the regulation. And I said, you know, what if you actually focused on getting a university curriculum changed mm -hmm. so that you cannot graduate with a degree in chemistry without having had to take classes in ethics, um, you know, to understand the impacts that the work you're doing has. So. I think we need to embed ethics into everything we're doing. And then that's why I, and so that's one point. The second point I would make is um, that 
the idea that we are all very narrowly focused and we become experts and we go deeper and deeper and deeper into our fields as our course, as our careers advance, um, it's fine. And I think there's a lot of people who will thrive in that um, and who will also provide tremendous value to society in that specialization. But I think the great leaps forward come from those who are able to take a step back and look outside of their domain laterally at other comparable domains. So the geneticist who undertakes to understand um, nutrition, you know, or the microbiologist who studies the brain, you know, that's when we start to get the complexity of these different systems talking to each other. And, you know, the vagus nerve connects the gut to the brain and it's like a super highway. And it could be that bacteria in our gut are what's actually triggering things like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, right? And certainly, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and, and other things like that. So, you know, I think, I think we need to become more interdisciplinary. And, you know, I'm encouraged by my friends who are teaching um, at, uh, at college level and, and postgraduate levels um, saying that they cannot get over how smart the kids are that are coming into their classrooms, how much they know, how much further they are um, than you know they were when they walked in 25 years earlier or whatever. And you know, the fact is we have, because of the digital revolution, because of our technology, you know, these kids grow up learning, everything is an input for them. They have the entire world at their feet. You know, yeah, okay, so they learned about sex from nasty porn on, on the internet, I'm sorry. Um, and that's, that's a big issue. That, that I would love to talk about some other day. But um, at the same time, I mean, my kids were playing, you know, SimCity and um, Railroad Tycoon and all these other simulation games that help them understand, you know, how cities are built and, and the right values to bring to, to create the outcomes you're looking for or how businesses work and what the compromises are and how the choices you make out in, you know, and uh, influence the outcomes. So, um, so I think we're better equipped. It sounds impossible to say, oh, well, you need to understand computer science and, you know, the genome, but we have people who are capable of doing that. Yeah. And yeah. I just, there's one other point that I wanted to make at the risk of going on too long, um, that as media creators, um, you know, there's, there's a book about this, which I would recommend. And that is um, Juan Enrique who's done TED Talks that are viewed by millions of people. He's a dear friend and a constant inspiration. Uh, you know, he's been writing about this concept of homo evolutus, like our ability to evolve ourselves uh, for 20 years now. You know, he invented the, the phrase bioeconomy. Um, he's been at Harvard uh, for a long time, but uh, his latest book is called Right, Wrong, How Technology Transforms Our Ethics. And, it's a really important read right now because you know you were saying how could we even envision today what our great grandchildren's choices will be and what choices we've made today how they will impact them well juan does exactly that you know he looks forward to the day when you know my great granddaughter you know comes to me and explains that you know, she had a child with another woman and they both used their own DNA to create it. You know, that's the whole concept of the artificial gamete, you know, or, or a, a trans man 
or, or a trans woman, you know, gave birth, you know, or, or whatever these crazy, you know, reproductive technologies will enable us to do. Um, and, you know, by the same token, we can't use our 2021 ethics to judge, you know, people 200 years ago. Um, you know, we, we can try, I've been watching Outlander. I don't know if you're binging Netflix series, but I certainly am. <laughs> I finally found Outlander and this woman is a time traveler. And, uh, you know, so she comes back to colonial America and is just hysterical about slavery uh, and uh, almost gets herself and her husband killed because of it. But anyway, the point being, um, I think we need to integrate the ethics. I think we are, um, I think we're at a better point now than maybe in the whole 30 years since I've been involved in this um, industry uh, to do so, to pay attention to the ethicists and to have them integrated like the designers have been integrated. You know, it used to be the engineers would do something and toss it over the wall, you know, to the marketing people. And then they embedded the marketers with the engineers so that they could do it together. Embed the designers with the marketers with the engineers, you know, bed the ethicists with the designers, with the marketers, with the engineers, you know, and we have the tools, we have Slack, we have Zoom, we have, you know, the tools to actually make that happen. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we have the capacity, we just need to have the will. Um, and, and, you know, even by the fact that we're having this conversation, Jane, right now, and, and having our networks of conversations outside of this, you, it's, it's the emergent will. I mean, it's, it is a conversation that's present. Um, obviously, we're doing what we can to forward that conversation, but it's already present. And I think the the thing I've learned more about creativity and, and the emergence of new ideas in the world is that it's simultaneous and it's multiplicative. It's it's all over the place. Um, you know, we are being used by this idea as much as we're using this idea to to forward some aim and some end. Uh, you know, and I fact, I can actually remember reading. Uh, you know, I can't remember who wrote the first articles about memetics and Wired. You know, like that, like the ideas that that. The idea that ideas travel, that they have these kind of viral qualities and not the memes that, that the kids kick around these days, but this is the real notion of that. And um, you know, so we're being used by something that seems really powerful, and important, and then we're using that to forward some larger aims. Uh, definitely want to get you to introduce us to Juan and have him on the show to have the, a bigger oh, conversation about this. Do. Yeah, yes, he's wonderful. Um, last question for you here. You know, as you look out into that future, you know, you said great, great or great, great grandchildren, you know, um, you know, how, how do you feel? What's your overall, uh, you know, do you feel disease about that? Do you feel excitement? You know, what is that future for you at this point in your life? You know, uh, when I first got involved with Neolife or the con the ideas that drove me to create Neolife, um, it was with just flat, bald faced, you know, excitement, optimism and, and and so forth. And, you know, I was already involved in this world when the first, you know, scientists um, genetically engineered, you know, those twins in China. And, um, and I can also see, you know, again, the story we published last week about a private equity firm that now owns, you know, 18 million uh, genomes from, you know, from Americans. Uh, actually, they're in 30 countries. Uh, you know, so so I, there is some disease in the sense that um, there, there will be acts of bioterror bio mm -hmm. and there will be acts of bioerror. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that we would be naive to think otherwise. There will be monopolies. Um, you know, there will be technologies that transform us in ways that many, if not most people would agree are not good. And 
on the other side, we can eliminate genetically inherited diseases. We can prevent the diseases of aging. Uh, we can uh, create a far more nutritious agricultural product that uses less land, less water, less fertilizer, and less pesticides. Um, we can feed whatever population level we want to, you know, on this planet with resources we currently have and technologies we are currently understand. I think those are pretty great things. Yeah. You know, we will um, tinker with uh, the genes that will um, make our species better adapted to life in space. And that will create a new race of humans. I, I believe this, you know, time frame unclear. <laughs> probably not my great-grandchildren, probably further out than that. But we already know there's a scientist, a brilliant uh, man and a wonderful humanitarian named George Church at Harvard, who back in 2015, maybe it's 2013, but I think it was 2015, 2017, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the, he edited 60 different genes in a pig. So the pig suffers from um, something called PERV, uh, porcine, you know, uh, retrovirus uh, um, infections. Uh, but he edited 60 genes that prevented the pig from developing um, this disease, which would allow us to use pigs to incubate human organs. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, you don't longer die for lack of a liver or a kidney, we'll just grow it in this pig. Um, you know, but perhaps then we create pigs that are part human, you know, and like hideous ideas. There's so many hideous ideas <laughs> at the forefront of the neobiological revolution uh, and hideous outcomes that, um, you know, you, you could spend your whole life thinking about that and writing horror no novels about that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the idea of having multiple species is really exciting. And maybe ultimately, is an evolutionary adaptation that kind of future proofs, you know, some of Homo sapien DNA um, because something could happen that Homo sapiens as currently configured can't adapt to and we'd be wiped out were it not for the fact that we started tinkering with these other aspects of, uh, of our genome. So ultimately I'm an optimist, you know, I think there'll be a balance though. I think it will come with, with some costs and some compromises, but whoever said we were the end of evolution. Whoever said we were the last ultimate and final, you know, act of creation, even evolution evolves. And if the planet becomes too hot to support Homo sapiens, maybe some new race of, you know, Homo sapien derived uh, or, or cyborg enhanced, you know, creature uh, roams this planet. And I just hope that when that happens, we get better at interacting with them than we have been at interacting with people whose DNA is different from ours by a tiny, tiny infinitesimal piece. Yeah, yeah. That the uh, you know, biological revolution has to be matched with a cultural revolution. That's um, you know that includes redesign of society. Obviously, um, we have the capacity to have um, you know equal access, uh, but 
culturally we don't do it. You know, we have the capacity to feed everybody, but you know, by by some set of market forces combined with political forces, we don't. Um, and so there's a lot to be said about upgrading, you know, the software of humanity, the, the way that we interact with one another, more, more love and more compassion. I mean, we kind of all know that more love, compassion, tolerance, resilience, we all know these are beautiful values and characteristics. And yet um, the, the evolution towards them is not linear. Um, it's, you know, it definitely has some twists and turns. Uh, I too, I agree. It's just accelerated. Yeah. Well, certainly, certainly everything's accelerated. And that's that's pretty proven out across multiple domains. Uh, I agree with you. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm an incurable optimist about these things. I still feel like I did in the late 90s, first, you know, making films and commercials and 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 that kind of the feeling like we could redesign the way that we interact with each other. I still feel that. I think what I feel that's differently different now is I want to do it not as um, you know, God creator, wonderkind kind of person, but as a deeply listening, deeply empathetic and sensitive creator that is uh, creating into a ecosystem and a world that that can benefit from everything that we're doing and can be harmed so that we should, you know, not not that we don't move quick when it's time to move quick, but that we we are thoughtful. Um, and uh, I, 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 when we when were, you know, in our conversation, I just so feel that it's like a uh, underlying um, uh, uh, thread of being that's in the conversation that leaves me feeling like, okay, we got, we've got all the resources we need in human beings. They're over there with Jane there. Uh, you spoke about Juan They're They're out there. Um, and part of what, what, you know, I know you're doing with Neolife, what we're doing with Boldly Now is knitting some of those conversations together giving them bigger platforms, making sure that everybody has access to this uh, um, good and more complete holistic systems oriented uh, thinking. Um, so I, I agree with you on the optimistic side. Uh, you know, Jane, I, I just wanna say I'm so appreciative of the work that you do. Appreciative of this conversation for sure. And I hope we get to keep having these conversations about the future and how we might generate a better one, but really appreciate the fact that, you know, you, you have made this amazing career uh, where you have continually explored the things that are in your interest and your passion, but have also illuminated for us so many things. Uh, I want to make sure everybody that's that's listening or watching the show, uh, be sure and go check out Neolife, N-E-O dot L-I-F-E. Uh, you guys have a book that's a compilation of essays and, and short fiction and things like that that really illuminate this new area. And of course, there's tons of resources and articles and things that are being published in that that uh, digital publication that are very, very valuable. If you have any interest, I want to say, if you have any interest, go to Neolife. It's not like a, a, a technical journal where you're going to have to have a, a, you know, a PhD in chemistry or biology or something like that to understand it. It's really written so that the, the average reader can dig in there and, and learn things and get, get, you know, get their life enriched and 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 opened up to this uh, revolution that's going on around us to some might be really terrifying to others really exciting but really an important conversation to have in the world so thank you thank you thank you well thank you for saying that and you know it is our responsibility to understand how these technologies are going to transform us we will be asked to weigh in on this and it is important that we educate ourselves um you know just as the revolution was like a giant steamroller that rolled over anybody that didn't want to participate or, or could not participate. The same thing is coming true. And you know, the, the scientists do not want to be left alone with the ethical decisions that have to be made now. So we have to step up as citizens 
and do some of the hard work to understand what's going on. And selfishly, I will just say neolife is an easy way to learn some of this stuff. It's more about being familiar with the issues uh, than it is, you know, grappling with molecular biophysics or or chemistry. Um, So, yeah, thank you for that. And it's, by the way, it's not... Uh, it's not neolife.com. It's, it's www.neo.life because that, dot get, life is a domain name. I know we get it with the L-Y all the time. Like people put bold.ly com. Like, no, it's not going to get you there. Yeah. If I'm, I, 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 it's funny because we all grew up in the .com world, right? Now we're in the dot all kinds of things world. So dot anything uh, goes world. Neo.life, N-E-O.L-I-F-E. Uh, go check it out for sure. Uh, Jane, it's been a, a, a pure joy and pleasure. I look forward to our next conversation. Uh, and, um, you know, keep, keep, uh, keep us informed, especially as these new things come up. We want to keep uh, talking about it with our audience and keeping us uh, kind of in, in, in between two worlds, predicting the future, and generating a future. We want to be able to understand what's predictable and what we might declare that we want to have happen. Uh, those of us who have uh, the wherewithal to imagine, imagine a, a better place for humanity and a thriving future for humanity. So uh, thank you, Jane. And um, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Michael, Sean. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Be sure to download Boldly You in the App Store, Google Play, or online at bold.ly forward slash Y-O-U. Boldly You is an app and learning platform igniting your burning desire, big ideas, and bold action, generating a future for a thriving humanity. Boldly Now is an initiative of the Generative Futures Initiative, generating a thriving future for humanity. Learn more at generativefuturesinitiative.com.